Well, my thanks to the pastoral staff for doing a great job for the summer sermon series. And it is my job to bring all of this to a conclusion here this morning. So join me in Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, where we do bring this series to a close, the series entitled, Our Identity in Christ, Who We Are in Christ. And it just so happens, when I was sitting there, somebody right behind me came in, this is no lie, came in, was talking to one of her friends and says, I just don't know what my identity is today. I don't know why she said it. It was Abby Brown. And I said, Abby, I have a sermon for you. <laughs> Lord's providence. All right, Colossians chapter one. And uh, we have certainly looked at uh, many of these new identities uh, that we have been given because of our union with Jesus through faith. We are the redeemed. That's where we started. We are the redeemed, saved from the slave market of sin. We then moved on to see that we are the justified, the justified, clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We saw that we are the resurrected since power has been broken in our lives. We're adopted children in God's family. We have the right to become children of God, the right to call God our Father. We saw that we are co-heirs with Christ. Christ's inheritance will one day be our inheritance. We have been saved and secure forever. We are God's workmanship. We are new creatures in Christ. Everything about us, everything about us now is new and better and superior. We saw that last week. I think Paul was right to quote the passage we began with in the series, Ephesians chapter 1, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, in union with Jesus. No blessing is withheld. Every identity we once had has been changed. So our goal throughout this summer series has been to encourage us to see ourselves the way God sees us. To define ourselves, not as the world would define us, but as God defines us, to cherish our union with Jesus and to cherish that union far more than any identity we might find in this world. So this morning we finished the series by looking at another new identity we have been given. We end where we do need to end. We have been reconciled to God. We have been reconciled to God. Look at verse 21. Start there, Colossians 1. I'm going to read verses 21 and 22. Although you are formerly alienated and hostile in mind, that's who we were. That was our old identity, alienated, hostile, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now, he has changed us, new identity. He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So the key here that unlocks everything is that phrase at the beginning of verse 22 there, he has now reconciled you. It's the main verb, it's one long sentence. It goes into verse 23 as well. He has now reconciled you. This is a passage about reconciliation 
passage about Christ uniting to himself his enemies. That's what the word reconciliation means. It means to bring together, to bring together two persons after a time of hostility. It's a reunion. It's a restoration of relationship. Anger is replaced with love. Wrath is replaced with blessing. Enemies are made friends. Think of Romans 5, 5.10. For if while we were enemies, we were at war with God, that's who we were, we were at war with God, even worse than that, God was at war with us. Yet we were reconciled, reconciled to God. It's the only answer, the only answer, the only solution for this war. A peace treaty must be signed. A truce, a truce must be enacted. Now look at verse 22 here. The word choice of Paul is significant. There are two Greek words for reconciliation in the New Testament. Two Greek words. The first is katalasso. Katalasso. That's not the word Paul chooses. Paul chooses a similar word. He chooses apakatalasso. That's the stronger of the two, the more intense. Paul does this on purpose. Why? Because he's stressing the completeness of our reconciliation, the totality of it, the sureness. This is the heart of the gospel. Enemies are made friends. Foes are made family. Now, we've noted these blessings throughout the summer. We've noted these different blessings. We've seen their significance. It's worth repeating, though, and putting reconciliation into the mix. Justification, justification is the foundational blessing of our salvation. It's foundational. Christ's righteousness being credited to us. Adoption is the most intimate of blessings, precious. We're brought into the very family of God. But when we look at reconciliation, we are looking now at the highest blessing of the gospel, the highest blessing, the apex of grace, the pinnacle of mercy. We are now God's forever. First Peter 3 says this, Christ died for sins once for all. Why? Here it is. So that he might bring us, reconcile us, bring us to God. This is the greatest blessing of the gospel. The greatest blessing is not forgiveness of sin. Greatest blessing is not the promise of eternal life. The greatest blessing is not heaven. The greatest blessing of the gospel is being brought near to God. To know him. To love him. To be loved by him. Why? Because God is the greatest good. We must be brought to him, reconciled to him. Jonathan Edwards puts it this way. He had much to say on this idea of God being our greatest good. He writes, God himself is the great good of our reconciliation, of our salvation. He is the highest good, the sum of all good, which Christ purchased. 
God is the inheritance of the saints. He is the portion of their souls. God is their wealth and treasure, their food, their life, their dwelling place, their ornament and diadem. God is their everlasting honor and glory. He is the great good which the reconciled are received to at death. The glorious excellencies and beauty of God will be what will forever entertain the minds of the saints. And the love of God will be their everlasting feast. God is the gospel, to quote one author. God is the gospel. He is our highest good. He is the highest blessing. And this is our new identity because we're in union with Jesus. We are the reconciled. We have been brought near to God. It's the great accomplishment of Christ's cross. Again, look at verse 22. Speaking of Christ, he, he takes the initiative. He has now reconciled you, how? In his fleshly body through death. That's amazing. Reconciliation required nothing less than the sinless Christ in grace based upon nothing inherent within us. No goodness, no righteousness in us. And he willingly leaves heaven, not just for earth. He willingly leaves heaven for death. He leaves the glory of heaven for the wrath of his father. He purchases the highest blessing at the greatest cost. This is the wonder of our new identity, the wonder of it all. So I want to unpack it that way as we work our way through verses 21, 22, and even into 23, the wonders of our reconciliation. Wonders that should leave us in awe of a God who would indeed call us to himself. Wonders that would humble us before the mercy of our Savior, deepen our worship of him, our love for him. There are three wonders here that we can know. Wonder number one. Wonder number one, we were reconciled despite the depravity of our nature. We were reconciled despite the depravity of our nature. Look at verse 21, as Paul sets the stage for Christ's work. Verse 21, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, that's when God reconciled you. So cherishing our reconciliation in Christ, grasping this new identity that we've been given begins by us coming to grips with the graveness and darkness of our former predicament without Christ. If we're going to understand who we are now, we need to remember who we were then. And the, Paul, the language Paul uses here holds no punches. Notice the first word. Where we were alienated, formerly alienated, cut off, separated, estranged. That was our previous identity. Alienated, separated from who? Separated from our creator, from God. The image here brings us back to Genesis 3, the fall of man. The banishment, estranged, the banishment in the garden 
In Adam, that was our old identity, in Adam, we all fell. In Adam, that perfect, pristine, ideal relationship was broken. And because of that, because of that sin, every human enters this world outside the sphere of God's blessing. We enter as an alien to God's joy. Alienated here implies isolation. We're a stranger in a foreign land. Alienated implies loneliness, a deep sense of not belonging. Now look up to verse 13. Paul has already given us a graphic picture of this. What did our alienation from God consist of? Well, before reconciliation takes place, we lived under, in the domain of darkness, the kingdom, the country, the country of darkness. It's a foreign land created by God, but now living in a land of sin, darkness. We've been cut off at that moment, cut off from God's saving grace. We don't see his divine mercy, experience his self-giving love. And the verb tense here, perfect tense, meaning that this was our fixed state, our fixed state. This was our condition. We continuously, persistently lived in this dark land. Continuously, we're out of harmony with a loving God. What was worse, we were unable to cross the border into God's country. We were formerly alienated. Yet this alienation goes deeper, Paul says. It's not just estrangement. This was an alienation that we loved. We relished in it. We actually love the domain of darkness. It's what we see in the next two phrases in verse 21. Yes, we were alienated, but we were also enemies of God. Notice, hostile in mind. And not only enemies, but we were also rebels against God. We were engaged in evil deeds. Hostile here. We hated God. We were his adversary. Translated as opponent. It's one thing to be separated from someone, right? It's one thing. It's quite another to act in hostility towards that person. That's who we were. And notice it goes deep, our hostility, hatefulness toward God, described in verse 21 as being in the mind. And when you read mind here, it's not just intellectually. It's not just your thought process. It's more than that. This is far more encompassing. This word mind is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's translated in the Hebrew with the word heart, Heart. We hated God in our hearts, not hallmark hearts. This is the mission control center of our lives. It's the center of our being. It's a fountain where our thoughts and decisions and dispositions and attitudes and actions, all of that comes from our hearts. 
Our hearts were carnal. We thought and loved and acted as if there was no God. We did not want Him. And this is in the present tense, referring to our conscious, continual antagonism to the one true and living God. We wanted life on our terms. We wanted to be our own authority. We wanted to answer to no one except ourselves. And thus, since our thoughts and our attitudes, our decisions of life were are always intertwined with behavior. Notice verse 21, continue it. We were also engaged in evil deeds. We were twisted in the mind, sinful. As on the inside, it shows itself on the outside. Again, present tense, evil deeds were our life, our pattern. Again, word choice is key. Paul chooses the word evil here on purpose. It's the stronger of two Greek words, again, used for evil. This is wickedness, wickedness at its core. He's applying that to us. Let's get an idea of this word. This word is used throughout the New Testament to describe, guess who? Satan. Paul's using it to describe us in our pre-identity before Jesus. Remember what Jesus says, pray like this, deliver us from what? From evil, same word, from the evil one. Jesus prayed in John 17, keep them from the evil one. Same word. The word for Satan is applied to us pre-Christ. This is how deep our rebellion went. We hated God as Satan hated God. I have no doubt you might have done moral things, sure. And in fact, you may have even been nice. But everything is like what? Filthy rags. It's all done in selfishness and selfishness is hatred to your creator. Your hatred to him ran deep. Alienation defined us. Hostility controlled us. Evil permeated us. This is where the great wonder of our new identity begins. That was our state. That is who we were. And yet notice the shift, verse 22, yet he has now, despite our hatred and evil against God, despite our hostility toward him, even while living in enmity and rebellion against God, in Christ, what does he do? Based upon his infinite grace, the mercy that he has, love for us, he restores fellowship. Intimacy, relationship with him. And this is the wonder that Paul writes about all through the New Testament. Back to Romans 5. While we were enemies. This is astounding, Paul says. While we were enemies. Same word, by the way. For hostile in verse 21. Ekthros, same word. While we were hating him, enemies. While we were in a state of active hostility toward God. This is what he did. He reconciles us. We were reconciled. Reunions accomplished. Again, staggering, astounding. It's the first wonder of our new identity as the reconciled. So it brings us to our knees in humility. 
before grace, before mercy. We were reconciled despite the depravity of our nature. And there's a reason why Paul refers to this over and over again in the New Testament. May we never forget who we were. That leads into verse 22 here. A second wonder, wonder number two. We are reconciled through the sacrifice of the sinless son. We are reconciled through the sacrifice of the sinless son. That is what we will celebrate this morning with the Lord's table. Verse 22, yet, translated this way, but, but he has now. There's a small phrase throughout the New Testament, the phrase, but he. It's one of the most important phrases throughout the entirety of Scripture. But he, but God. At every crucial moment in redemptive history, every crucial moment, you will find that phrase, but God. It's a phrase that shows a contrast. It's a great turning point. It's a contrast from darkness to light. It's a phrase that shows God has not forgotten his people or his promises. I think the very first place it's mentioned is with Noah. You have the flood. The world is destroyed. The ark is floating. And then you have this, but God remembered Noah. It's a great turning point. He's going to come and save and deliver shows that God searches and emphasizes God is the one who takes action when he doesn't have to. When you read that in verse 22, yet he has now, that's a trumpet sound of victory. What we are incapable of doing, what we needed most, God has done. He took the initiative. Put it in identity language. Who we were before is not who we are now because of God. Follow the flow here. Yet he, but he, who is the he? We'll, we'll get specific here. He, the he here is the himself of verse 20. Reconcile all things to himself. The he, the reconciler, is the his in verse 20, the blood of his cross. This is the him in verse 19. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. The one who reconciles is Christ. Our identity in Christ secures our reconciliation to God. But we can't just stop here in these verses. Now there's a flow of thought that Paul builds upon Again, he wants us to be staggered by this. So let's connect the work of reconciliation, verse 22, to what Paul has written starting in verse 15. Who is the one who reconciles? Verse 15, it is the one who is the image of the invisible God. This is God himself. Equal to God the Father, just as holy as God the Father. He's the reconciler. Look at verse 15 again the firstborn over all creation. Verse 16, he's the one who has created all things, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. All things have been created through him and for him. So the one who reconciles sinful creatures to himself is the creator himself. 
Look at verse 17. He is the one who is before all things, preexistent, all glorious, full deity. He is before all things, and all things hold together in him. Here's the contrast. Instead of removing his sustaining hand of existence and destroying his enemies, instead he reaches out his hand of grace and saves and delivers and draws us even into the relationship with the Trinity. This is the cosmic Christ as the reconciler. Verse 22, he has now reconciled, he has placed himself on that cross Continue that, reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Through death. There's two actions here. Two actions being emphasized. Reconciled you in his fleshly body and then through death. First of all, he needed to live a perfect life you could not live. That's what he does. That is the phrase, in his fleshly body. Second, he needed to die in our place and endure the wrath we could never endure. That's the phrase through death. In his fleshly body, sinless, the sinless life of Christ is lived. To be given the identity as being reconciled to God, drawn to God, we not only needed our sins forgiven, that's important, but more than that, we needed righteousness to be credited And again, that's the in his fleshly body, live that perfect life. We could not live. He took upon himself human flesh. He identifies with our weaknesses. He battled temptation victoriously in every way. He satisfies God's demand for utter holiness. And all of that righteousness is credited to us, placed on our account. But that's just one half. Yes, righteousness is credited, but there also needs to be forgiveness. There needs to be a sacrifice for that sin payment. And again, that phrase through death, that sacrificial language here. So here's Paul's point. Again, trying to stagger us to this wonder of our new identity reconciled. His point is that our reconciliation, our new identity in Jesus costs Christ dearly. Not only remember who we were, remember what it cost our Savior. It cost him dearly. The death mentioned in verse 22 is not just physical death, though that's involved. This is spiritual death. This is abandonment by his Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me. And the wonder of all of this, the wonder of it all, is that the eternal, all-glorious, all-majestic Christ of verses 15 through 19, he's the one who did this for aliens, for those hostile to his righteousness, for those who, who are evil to the core. Same nature as Satan himself, or children of the devil. 
the wonder of Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be? Love the hymn. He writes this, And can it be that I, knowing everything of what verse 21 says about us, that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? That's a question. Died he for me? Am I to understand that correctly? He died for me? And then Wesley gives the answer. Amazing love. How can that be? That thou, my God, shouldst die for me. He's staggered by the wonder of reconciliation. Wonder number two, God reconciled us through the sacrifice of the sinless son. Leads in the middle of verse 22, the third wonder here. Wonder number three. Love this. We were reconciled in order to enjoy God's eternal presence. We were reconciled in order to enjoy God's eternal presence. Look at verse 22 again. In order to, here's now the ultimate aim of all of this. What's the point? This is reconciliation culminated in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. From our pre-salvation condition to Christ's work on the cross, that's verses 21 through 22, the beginning. Paul now fast forward to the time when Christ will return for his own. He fast forwards to the time of our resurrection, our glorification. And the cosmic Christ presents us, literally causes us to stand before him. He's going to present us. He's going to present us to his father. And how will Christ present us to his father at our resurrection, our glorification? Answer, first, holy. We will be holy, set apart, dedicated completely set apart. We'll finally be freed from the presence and influence of sin in our life. Anyone looking forward to that? The contrast from alienation from God and loneliness apart from God, now we're set apart forever unto God. But not only holy, continue it, Christ will also present us before his Father as blameless, literally here, without blemish, unspotted. Give me some leeway here, without wrinkles. It's a good thing. I'm starting to get wrinkles around here. I don't like that. The word here, blameless, though, technical word for sacrifice, for sacrifice. So the word used to describe the temple sacrifices that had to be without blemish. Even more though, it's the same word used to refer to Christ as the Lamb of God. The final sacrifice. Christ offered himself without blemish to God. Hebrews. First Peter 1, we were saved with precious blood as, a, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The final sacrifice the final lamb, sinless. So what Paul is saying here is this, when Christ presents us to his father, the righteousness of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus that had been credited to our account, 
The moment we believe justification, that righteousness credited to our account, that righteousness will no longer be credited to our account. Instead, it will actually be experienced by us. Christ's righteousness will be fully realized. We'll obtain that righteousness not in a judicial way, but in an experiential way. That'll be our righteousness. We will stand before the Father just as righteous, blameless, spotless as His Son. There will be complete freedom from every inward impurity and defilement, finally. And again, the contrast, the but God contrast. Verse 21, we were hostile in mind, but now we will be presented before the Father just as blameless in our character as Christ himself. To which Paul then adds, continue verse 22, and beyond reproach. He's just piling the terms on now. Beyond reproach. Free from all accusation is the term. This is how blameless we will be. There will be absolutely no charge of sin that can be brought against us. Satan's described in Revelation 12 as the accuser of the brethren. Satan loves to hurl charges of sin at us. He seeks to condemn us before God, but no charge will stick. Right now, no charge sticks because of justification, credited righteousness. But there in glory, no charge will stick because we actually experience the righteousness of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.8, when Christ is revealed, we will be blameless, same word. We will be beyond reproach in the day of our Lord Jesus. It's our coming day. Ephesians 1, God the Father chose us in Him, in the Son, to be united to the Son before the foundation of the world. Why? What purpose? Here it is, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in His eternal presence. In the words of Jude, all who have been united to Christ, reconciled to God, will one day stand, unashamed, we will stand in the presence of the Father's glory, blameless with great joy. Right now we stand in grace, but then we will stand in glory. Again, the contrast to verse 21 from being engaged in evil deeds, the very deeds of Satan himself, we will one day stand before God with no blemish, irreproachable. It's the third wonder of our reconciliation. We have been reconciled in order to stand in the eternal presence of our God. Which brings us then to verse 23. Verse 23. And here now, Paul brings great application to each and every one of those identities we enjoy in Christ. Yes, this is the summary, the conclusion of this passage, but it's also the conclusion of this summer sermon series here. Paul's explained what we will be in the future. 
holy, blameless, without reproach. But now Paul focuses on the present, the present. Who are we to be now, given our identity in Jesus? Who are we to be now? How does everything that we have looked at, every identity we have delved into over this summer, how does that change us now? We know we will be changed later, but how does it change us now? Look at verse 23, here's the conclusion. Before him, holy, we will be presented and blameless and beyond reproach if, it's the key word, there's a condition here so the warning, a call, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. The call here is this, do not allow these great wonders of reconciliation to become commonplace in your life. Do not forget your identities we have looked at over this summer series. Do not take them for granted. Do not grow complacent because of them. Do not brush them aside. For if you do, back to that key word, if, if you do, you simply prove that you never truly understood them or embrace them. These are not meaningful to you. Despite what you may claim, Paul says here, you are never united to your Savior. It's the if warning. This does not mean that a reconciled sinner can lose salvation. Absolutely not. Now, what Paul is emphasizing here is that when Christ reconciles you to his Father, when he grants you your new identity, you're a new creature. Everything is new. Every spiritual blessing has been given to you. Not only does that guarantee a change that will take place in you in the future, but it also guarantees that a change will take place within you in the present. The call here is for us as believers to cherish Christ's reconciling work, to love his reconciling cross, and to be humbled by our union with Jesus and all of those new identities, superior identities. So that, continue verse 23, this is what our lives will look like. We indeed will continue. We will persevere in the faith. We will remain unmoved in the only gospel that saves. We will remain firmly established This is the call for Christ's cross, for his gospel to be the very foundation of our life. We'll continue in the faith. We'll remain firmly established and we will be, verse 23, steadfast, seated and settled in who we are in Jesus. We'll love those identities. We'll love that Savior. And then verse verse 23 continues, not moved away. Everything in this world tries to pull us away from the gospel. Everything. 
Everything in this world tries to cause us to see ourselves as something other than what we've seen ourselves to be in Christ. And Paul says, do not move away from the hope of the gospel. That's the life of the true believer. That's the life of the reconciled saint. This is the life of those in Christ. It's a heart that cherishes and loves their reconciling Jesus. It's a life that is committed to Christ and is crossed. It's steadfastness. It's being unmoved for his glory. Think of 2 Corinthians 9. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. We are in Christ. Father, you have given us yourself. You have allowed us into your presence. You have allowed us, Lord, to be seated at your right hand in Jesus now. You have given us access and prayer to you. We can come to the throne of grace. We're in your family. The indescribable gift of grace through Jesus. Lord, let us treasure, let us treasure your gospel and these identities. I pray that we would walk by faith and not by sight, that everything this world wants to take us from understanding about ourselves, that we would remain steadfast and firm. And that we would have a love for your son, our savior, that love would grow. It would grow in our understanding of what it means to be united to him. We thank you for that phrase, in Christ for it describes us. We pray this in his name. Amen.